This is section 11 of newspaper articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper articles by Mark Twain, section 11, Territorial Enterprise, November 1863. Territorial Enterprise, November 1863. Letter from Mark Twain. Carson City, November 7, 1863. Editor's Enterprise. This has been a busy week a notable and historical week, and the only one which has yet passed over this region, perhaps, whose deeds will make any important stir in the outside world. Some dozens of people in America have heard of Nevada Territory, which they vaguely understand to be in Virginia City, though they have no definite idea as to where Virginia City is, as the place which sends silver bricks to the sanitary fund and some other dozens have heard of Washoe, without exactly knowing whether the name refers to the Northwest Passage or to the source of the Nile. But when it is shouted abroad through the land that a new star has risen on the flag, a new state born to the Union, then the nation will wake up for a moment and ask who we are and where we came from. They will also ascertain that the new acquisition is called Nevada they will find out its place on the map and always recollect afterwards in a general way that it is in north america they will see at a glance that nevada is not in virginia city and be surprised at it they will behold that neither is it in california and will be unable to comprehend it they will learn that our soil is alkali flats and our shrubbery sagebrush and be as wise as they were before their mouths will water over statistics of our silver bricks and verily they will believe that god createth silver in that form this week's worth is the first step toward giving the world a knowledge of nevada and it is a giant stride too for it will provoke earnest inquiry immigration will follow and wild cat advance this convention of ours is well worth being proud of there is not another commonwealth in the world of equal population perhaps that could furnish the stuff for its fellow i doubt if any constitutional convention ever officiated at the birth of any state in the union which could boast of such a large proportion of men of distinguished ability according to the number of its members as is the case with ours there are thirty-six delegates here and among them I could point out fifteen who would rank high in any community, and the balance would not be second-rate in most legislatures. There are men in this body whose reputations are not local, by any means, such as Governor Johnson, William M. Stewart, Judge Bryan, John A. Collins, N. A. H. Ball, General North, and James Stark, the tragedian such a constellation as that ought to shed living light upon our constitution general north is president of the convention governor johnson is chairman of the legislative committee one of the most important among the standing committees and one which has to aid in the construction of every department of the constitution mr ball occupies his proper place as chairman of the committee on finance state debt etc the judiciary committee is built of sound timber and is hard to surpass it is composed of messrs stewart johnson larroe and bryan we shall have a constitution that we need not be ashamed of rest assured 
but it will not be framed in a week. Every article in it will be well considered and freely debated upon. And just here I would like to know if it would not be as well to get up a constitutional silver brick or so, and let the sanitary fund rest a while. It would cost at least ten thousand dollars to put this convention through in anything approaching a respectable style, yet the sum appropriated by the legislature for its use was only three thousand dollars, and the script for it will not yield one thousand five hundred dollars. The new state will have to shoulder the present territorial debt of ninety thousand dollars, but it seems to me we might usher her into the world without adding to this an accouchement fee, so to speak, of ten or fifteen thousand more. Why, the convention is so poor that it cannot even furnish newspapers for its members to read. Kerosene merchants hesitate to afford it light. Unfeeling draymen who haul wood to the people scorn its custom. It elected official reporters, and for two days could negotiate no desks for them to write on. It confers upon them no spittoons to this day. In fact, there is only one spittoon to every seven members, and they furnish their own fine cut into the bargain. In my opinion, there are not inkstands enough to go around, or pens either, for that matter. Colonel Youngs, chairman of the Committee on Ways and Means, to pay expenses, has gone blind and bald-headed, and is degenerating into a melancholy lunatic. This is all on account of his financial troubles." it all comes of his tireless efforts to bully-rag a precarious livelihood for the convention out of territorial scrip at forty-one cents on the dollar will ye see him die when fifty-nine cents would save him i wish i could move the convention up to virginia that you might see the delegates worried and business delayed or brought to a standstill every hour in the day by the eternal emptiness of the treasury then would you grow sick as i have done of hearing members caution each other against breeding expense. I begin to think I don't want the capital at Virginia if this financial distress is always going to haunt us. Now, I had forgotten until this moment that all these secrets about the poverty of the convention treasury and the inoffensive character of territorial scrip were revealed to the House yesterday by Colonel Youngs, with a feeling request that the reporters would keep silent upon the subject lest people abroad should smile at us. I clearly forgot it, but it is too late to mend the matter now. Honorable Gordon N. Mott is in town, and leaves with his family for San Francisco tomorrow. He proposes to start to Washington by the steamer of the 13th. Mr. Lemon's little girl, two years old, had her thigh-bone broken in two places this afternoon. She was run over by a wagon. Dr. Jader set the limb, and the little sufferer is doing as well as could be expected under the circumstances. I used to hear Governor Johnson frequently mentioned in Virginia as a candidate for the United States Senate from this budding state of ours. He is not a candidate for that or any other office, and will not become one. I make this correction on his own authority, and therefore the various senatorial aspirants need not be afraid to give it full credence. Messrs. Pete Hopkins and A. Curry have compromised with me, and there is no longer any animosity existing on either side. They were a little worried at first, if you recollect, about that thing which appeared recently—I think it was in the Gold Hill News—concerning an occurrence which has happened in the great pine forest down there at Empire. We sent our last report to you, 
by our stirring official Gillespie, secretary of the convention. I thought that might account for your not getting it, in case you didn't get it, you know. Mark Twain Territorial Enterprise, November 17, 1863 Letter from Mark Twain Carson, November 15, 1863 Editor's Enterprise Compiled by our own reporter Thus the Virginia Union of this morning gobbles up the labors of another man. That homographic record of the Constitutional Convention was compiled by Mr. Gillespie, Secretary of the Convention, at odd moments snatched from the incessant duties of his position, and unassisted by our own reporter or anybody else. Now, this isn't fair, you know. Give the devil his due. By which metaphor I refer to Gillespie— but in an entirely inoffensive manner, I trust. And do not go and give the credit of this work to one who is not entitled to it. I copied that chart myself, and sent it to you yesterday, and I don't see why you couldn't have come out and done the complimentary thing by claiming its paternity for me. In that case, I should not have mentioned this matter at all. But the main object of the present letter is to furnish you with the revolting details of ANOTHER BLOODY MASSACRE a massacre in which no less than a thousand human beings were deprived of life without a moment's warning of the terrible fate that was in store for them. This ghastly tragedy was the work of a single individual, a man whose character was gifted with many strong points, among which were great benevolence and generosity, and a kindness of heart which rendered him susceptible of being persuaded to do things which were really at times injurious to himself and which noble trait in his nature made him a very slave to those whom he loved a man whose disposition was a model of mildness until a fancied wrong drove him mad and impelled him to the commission of this monstrous crime this wholesale offering of blood to the angry spirit of revenge which rankled in his bosom it is said that some of his victims were so gashed and torn and mutilated that they scarcely retained a semblance of human shape. As nearly as I can get at the facts in the case, and I have taken unusual pains in collecting them, the dire misfortune occurred about as follows. It seems that certain enemies ill-treated this man, and in revenge he burned a large amount of property belonging to them. They arrested him, and bound him hand and foot, and brought him down to Lehigh, the county seat, for trial and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the cords that were upon his arms became as flax that was burnt with fire, and his bands loosed from off his hands. And he found a new jawbone of an ass, and put forth his hand, and took it, and slew a thousand men therewith. When he had finished his terrible tragedy, the desperado, criminal, whose name is Samson, deliberately wiped his bloody weapon upon the leg of his pantaloons, and then tried its edge upon his thumb, as a barber would a razor, simply remarking, With the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass have I slain a thousand men. He even seemed to reflect with satisfaction upon what he had done, and to derive great comfort from it, as if he would say, Only a mere thousand. Oh, no, I ain't on it, I reckon." I am sorry that it was necessary for me to furnish you with a narrative of this nature, because my efforts in this line have lately been received with some degree of suspicion. Yet 
it is my inexorable duty to keep your readers posted, and I will not be recreant to the trust, even though the very people whom I try to serve upbraid me. Mark Twain. P.S. Now keep dark, will you? I am hatching a deep plot. I am laying, as it were, for the editor of that San Francisco evening journal. The massacre I have related above is all true, but it occurred a good while ago. Do you see my drift? I shall catch that fool. He will look carefully through his Gold Hill and Virginia exchanges, and when he finds nothing in them about Samson killing a thousand men, he will think it is another hoax, and come out on me again, in his feeble way, as he did before. I shall have him foul, then, and I will never let up on him in the world, as we say in Virginia. I expect it will worry him some to find out, at last, that one Samson actually did kill a thousand men with the jawbone of one of his ancestors, and he never heard of it before. Mark. Territorial Enterprise, November 1863. Note. Ingomar the Barbarian was presented at Maguire's Opera House in Virginia City during the fall of 1863. Mark Twain reviewed the play after his own fashion. Review of Ingomar the Barbarian. Act I. Mrs. Cloughley appears in the costume of a healthy Greek matron from Limerick. She urges Parthenia, her daughter, to marry Polydor, and save her father from being sold out by the sheriff, the old man being in debt for assessments. Scene two. Polydor, who is a wealthy, spindle-shanked, stingy old stockbroker, prefers his suit, and is refused by the Greek maiden, by the accomplished Greek maiden, we may say, since she speaks English without any perceptible foreign accent. Scene three. The Comanches capture Parthenia's father, old Myron, who is the chief and only blacksmith in his native village. They tear him from his humble cot, and carry him away to Reese River. They hold him as a slave. It will cost thirty ounces of silver to get him out of soak. Scene four. Dusty times in the Myron family. Their house is mortgaged. They are without dividends. They cannot stand the raise. Parthenia, in this extremity, applies to Polydor. He sneeringly advises her to shove out after her exiled parent herself. She shoves. Act two. Camp of the Comanches. In the foreground, several of the tribe throwing dice for tickets in Wright's gift entertainment. In the background, old Myron packing faggots on a jack. The weary slave weeps, he sighs, he slobbers. Grief lays her heavy hand upon him. Scene two, Comanches on the warpath, headed by the chief Ingomar. Parthenia arrives and offers to remain as a hostage, while old Myron returns home and borrows thirty dollars to pay his ransom with. It was pleasant to note the varieties of dress displayed in the costumes of Ingomar and his comrades. It was also pleasant to observe that in those ancient times the better class of citizens were able to dress in ornamental carriage robes, and even the rank and file indulged in Benkert boots, albeit some of the latter appeared not to have been blacked for several days. Scene three, Parthenia and Ingomar alone in the woods. Two souls with but a single thought, etc. She tells him that is love. He can't see it. Scene four. The thing works around about as we expected it would in the first place. Ingomar gets stuck after Parthenia. Scene five. Ingomar declares his love. He attempts to embrace her. 
She waves him off, gently but firmly. She remarks, "'Not too brash, Ing. Not too brash now.' Ingemar subsides. They finally flee away, and hie them to Parthenia's home. Acts 3 and 4. Joy! Joy! From the summit of a hill Parthenia beholds once more the spires and domes of Silver City. Scene 2. Silver City. Enter Myron. Tableau. Myron begs for an extension on his note. He has not yet raised the whole ransom, but he is ready to pay two dollars and a half on account. Scene 3. Myron tells Ingemar he must shuck himself and dress like a Christian. He must shave. He must work. He must give up his sword. His rebellious spirit rises. Behold, Parthenia tames it with the mightier spirit of love. Ingemar weakens. He lets down. He is utterly demoralized. Scene 4. Enter Old Timurk, Chief of Police. He offers Ingemar, but this scene is too noble to be trifled with in burlesque. Scene 5. Polydor presents his bill, 213 drachmas. Busted again. The old man cannot pay. Ingemar compromises by becoming the slave of Polydor. Scene 6. The Comanches again, with Thorn at their head. He asks, Who enslaved the chief? Ingemar points to Polydor. Lo! Thorn seizes the trembling broker and snatches him bald-headed. Scene 7. Enter the chief of police again. He makes a treaty with the Comanches. He gives them a ranch apiece. He decrees that they shall build a town on the American flat, and appoints great Ingemar to be its mayor. Applause by the soups. Scene 8. Grand Tableau. Comanches, police, Paiutes, and citizens generally. Ingemar and Parthenia hanging together in the center. The old thing. The old poetical quotation, we mean. They double on it. Ingemar observing, Two souls with but a single thought. And she slinging in the other line, Two hearts that beat as one. Thus united at last in a fond embrace, they sweetly smiled upon the orchestra, and the curtain fell. Reprinted in the Golden Era, November 29, 1863. Territorial Enterprise, circa November 27, 1863. Mark Twain on Artemus Ward, The Wild Humorous of the Plains. We understand that Artemus Ward contemplates visiting this region to deliver his lectures, and perhaps make some additions to his big show. In his last letter to us he appeared particularly anxious to secure a couple of horned toads, also a lizard which it may be processed of two tails, or any comical snakes, and any such little unconsidered trifles, as the poets say, which they do not interest the common mind. Further be it known that I would like a opportunity for to make a model in wax of a average size wash-o man, with feet attached, as an companion picture to a waxen figure of a nigger I have secured at an large outlay, which it has a unnatural big head unto it. Could you also manage to gobble up the scalp of the late Mrs. Hopkins? I adore such footprints of atrocity as it were muchly. I was ruminatin' on gettin' the bust of Mark Twain, but I've quit contemplatin' the work. They tell me down here to the bay that the busts air so common 
it would only be in waste of wax to get us counterfeit presentiment we shall assist mr ward in every possible way about making his washoe collection and have no doubt but he will pick up many curious things during his sojourn end of section eleven